9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am here in New York City today uh, in August when we are recording this, uh, and I am joined by... Rosa Brooks, who is where is Rosa? Where I'm is still Rosa? I'm still in Wyoming, David. I'm I'm hoping to find a T Rex skeleton in my wow. rambles in the hills. That's wow. my goal. Wow. I hope you do too. Um, and I'll, in I'll Washington, bring you back a bone. Yeah, a big one, a really big <laughs> one. Um, and wouldn't your dog like that? Look what I brought home. And then, you know, there's a T Rex bone. Uh, and joining us from New York and from Washington, D.C., we have Evelyn Farkas of the Marshall German Marshall Fund, and we have Joe Cerencioni of the Plowshares uh, Fund. So, um, uh, hi, guys. Welcome. Thank you, David. Hi. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, the, the news, uh, which tends to drive these conversations here, uh, has for a lot of reasons, been focused on the United States and driven by um, tragedy, um, mass shootings again in, in, uh, in uh, El Paso, Texas, and in Dayton, Ohio, um, and, uh, you know, the 249th and 250th mass shootings of this year. Um, but I want to come to that if you want to, but I really want to take take a, a step away from that um, and and say that while we our attention is drawn to those things, can't help but notice that the world itself is is maybe in worse shape. Um, uh, perhaps such comparisons are unnecessary, you know, Bad things can happen here, and bad things can happen there. But as 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 I look around the planet right now, I see a whole host of things. Ed Luce, our friend who is off in England um, this week, for example, uh, noted that the the leader of India, Prime Minister Modi, decided today to revoke Kashmir's special status and to send in 8,000 more troops, um, partly, he, he notes, as a result of Trump's fantastically ill-informed offer um, to, quote, meditate with Pakistan. Uh, Ed calls this a very worrying escalation on the world's most dangerous nuclear flashpoint. Uh, since I've got you here, Joe, and as I we begin this tour of the world, um, just wondering if you would like to comment on Ed's assertion that this is the world's most dangerous nuclear flashpoint. I would say that before uh, the crisis with North Korea erupted on this administration, most experts would have said the area of the world where we're most likely to see nuclear weapons used again in combat was South Asia. Uh, 
And, and I think that's true once again. You could argue that in 2017, the, the, the risk of, of, of North Korea made that the flashpoint, but I would say uh, Ed's right on that. And that's because of several basic factors. One, both of these countries are now nuclear armed. They both tested in 1998. They both have about 150 atomic bombs. Uh, no hydrogen bombs that we know of. All, they have deployed on a number of different delivery vehicles. Some of them were very short fuses, uh, in, including short-range rockets, including um, fighter aircraft, as well as longer-range uh, missiles. They've fought four wars, if you count the cargo crisis as a war, four wars since independence. They're, the the fighting along the line of control in the Himalayas, in the Kashmir Valley, continues with soldiers on both sides dying almost every month and sometimes dying in by the dozens in shooting crises. Uh, Pakistan in particular has an unstable government with a collapsing economy, with strong um, religious fundamentalist influences in the military and the intelligence. Uh, Pakistan has al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda-like organizations operating within its national territory. Some may be linking up with these fundamentalist influences in the military. You're always worried about an insider-outsider threat. Can a terrorist group get a hold of some of Pakistan's nuclear weapons? I mean, all of this uh, makes it a flashpoint. So whenever something like this happens, the announcement you just said, David, you're worried that this is the thing. This is the thing that not necessarily intentionally, but it's the thing that adds uh, an, another, another throws another match at the at the pyre, throws another as another spark that could set off a war. And if and every everybody here on this call who's ever played a war game involving South Asia knows that those war games always go nuclear. Once a shooting war starts, it's very hard to see where you draw the line, how you stop one side or the other from using a nuclear weapon. Well, um, Evelyn, war games are things that you have participated in. Um, what Joe says is pretty ominous. I would add to this that not just Ed commented on this, I follow a lot of Indian experts, then every single one of them sort of went into red alert this morning. Every single one of them said, this is the most worrisome development uh, in a long time because it changes the status along this bright red line between India and um, Pakistan. And of course, you know, Pakistan's principal ally is China. Um, uh, this is a, 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 a nuclear confrontation. Uh, it's 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 very it's it's very very worrisome, um, and it's there's no denying that the role the president played uh, is is a material one here because he introduced himself into this with something that was immediately decried as a lie. I would agree absolutely with everything that Joe just said. You know, it's now. A 10 year old report, but when I was executive director of the WMD Commission, which was the child of the 9 11 Commission, mandated by Congress to look at the intersection between terrorism and weapons of mass destruction, that report and the commission declared that the most dangerous place on earth was Pakistan because of loose nukes, but also because of the standoff between Pakistan and India 
and Pakistan's conventional vulnerability, which made them more likely and continues to make them more likely to use nuclear weapons should they ever come into confrontation with India. So yes, it's incredibly dangerous. I think every administration has had to deal with this. Every, you know, every administration has dealt with this, has looked at it with very clear eyes. It hasn't garnered a lot of attention by the media um, which is kind of interesting, mainly because for whatever reason, you know, the, the problem's been kept under control. Um, unfortunately, yes, I mean, the ignorance of the president when it comes to the, the geopolitics, the intricate, you know, standoff, diplomatic and military and political between India and Pakistan in the region uh, is something that he doesn't understand. Um, and I, I don't really want to say more about that. I mean, I think it's appalling. And again, it's up to professionals and also people outside of the administration. I mean, there are people who were very heavily involved in previous administrations, even Republican administrations. I'm sure Joe can remember when Richard Armitage um, stepped in to cool down a situation that was um, he was deputy assistant secretary of state under Colin Powell. And there was a dangerous moment between India and Pakistan, if I'm remembering correctly, in the early 2000s. And, you know, there are a lot of people outside of government who could have stepped in and said something. I, I, my, it doesn't appear that we're doing anything diplomatically to relieve the pressure. Uh, so, you know, again, yes, you're right. I mean, the president knows very well how to ramp up tensions domestically and internationally, but he hasn't done a good job. Tamp tamping them down. You know, Rosa, what, one of the things this does is answers a question that we sometimes ask here in a, a more lighthearted way, perhaps, which is, you know, what's more dangerous, the president's ignorance or the president's, you know, uh, evil? Uh, and, you know, in domestic affairs, you see examples such as what we've seen over the weekend, where the president's uh, uh, support for racism or white supremacist has a toll. That's evil. Uh, but in foreign policy, and I, we, we will talk about a bunch of other areas like this one, this is an example where inexperience and ignorance uh, and just an impulse to self-aggrandizement without any sense of context, context or consequences can have a very, very uh, high cost. And in a minute, I'm going to turn to China, where we're seeing that uh, in spades. But just thought you might want to talk about it, since it's a theme you return to every so often. <laughs> um, well, the, the only small piece of good news is that there doesn't seem to be any likelihood that the Indians are going to let Trump show up to mediate uh, or do anything, anything close to that. Obviously, Trump claimed that uh, the Indian prime minister had asked him, suggested that he show up and, you know, offer his good services. But India is now saying very clearly, no, we, we made no such request and we don't want his help go away. Um, uh, because, I, you know, I do think this is, a, as, as Evelyn and, and Joe have said, this is an extremely dangerous situation. The only thing that could potentially make it even more dangerous would probably be Donald Trump in the mix. Um, but I, so I think he's going to, he won't be able to be in the mix and that that's probably just as well, frankly. Um, um, I, I, I actually wanted to make a different point, one that we've also talked about before, which is, which is about how we think about these kinds of risky and dangerous situations. And I think it's really, really 
tempting and nobody on nobody on our podcast is doing this needless to say but it's, it's really really tempting i think for you know you're just watching the watching the news you're reading the paper even for experts to start getting this this false sense of um uh, of stability and calm by saying, oh, you know, we get these crises with cash here. They, they erupt every so often. Everybody goes into a panic and thinks there's going to be a nuclear war and it always settles down. So relax. There's really nothing to worry about here. We do that. We do that with all kinds of other issues as well. We do that with North Korea. We do it with Iran. You know, that there's, you know, something happens. It's at the top of the headlines for a few days and then the tensions kind of simmer down and what starts happening is the sort of boy who cried wolf phenomenon is that then the next time tensions erupt, um, you know, there are people like us who say, oh, my God, this is dangerous and terrifying. And then there are always people kind of go, oh, you know, don't be silly. These things always just settle themselves. But but it's such a such a misunderstanding of of risk and probability and, and, and our ability to predict outcomes. You know, it, it's like, it's like rolling, you know, taking two dice and rolling them 10 times and you never get two sixes coming up. And so you start saying, oh, well, that could never happen. See, all you people who say that statistically, it's likely at some point, you know, you're just ridiculous. Don't be silly. And I think, you know, this is even more uncertain because with, with dice, you know, that you do it often enough, uh, you're going to get two sixes, but, but, but here it is, it is really similar. You know, the, the fact that the crisis, the fact that Kashmir has not yet launched, started a nuclear war um, should not make us feel remotely calmer about the current situation. It should make us feel like we have every, much re every bit as much reason now as we've ever had before to feel extremely worried and do everything we possibly can to cool things down. Because when the tensions do get diffused, that it doesn't happen by accident. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a really important point. And I just want to, you know, I want to tip my hand here a little bit. Uh, so both of all of you guys uh, know where I'm going with this. Uh, and then we'll go and break these things down. But what struck me was that as we were immersed in stories about El Paso and about Dayton, Ohio, um, and these are horrible stories. Uh, just in the past couple of days, just over this weekend, everything that we're going to talk about on this episode happened or got worse. This cashmere situation happened. The White House decided to sanction the foreign minister of Iran in the midst of a negotiation with Iran. Uh, we made a further official decision about getting out of the INF treaty with Russia. Uh, Chinese troops began massing on the border of Hong Kong. So there are pictures today of troops and personnel carriers waiting in Shenzhen, an hour away from Hong Kong, about ready to go in as Hong Kong enters the ninth day of riots. Uh, there's rising tension in the Persian Gulf uh, with regard to another tanker seized and the UK making a decision to enter into that. Um, there is an escalating trade and currency war uh, with China that has taken a much more dire uh, turn and can exacerbate uh, all of what we are talking about. Uh, and even as we are you know, recording this, which is on a Monday afternoon, I keep looking up yeah, at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is 
uh, down, you know, 850 points roughly uh, as we talk because of all of that. And on top of that, you can take, you know, uh, the, the Kashmir story, the China story, the trade story, the Iran story, the INF story. In, in many respects, the worst story is that the Arctic is burning and the, the Greenland ice cap is melting to the point that the oceans are going to rise. And terrible developments in all of these things have happened in the past two days, Joe. This is not, you know, this is not like, uh, here's a list of things to worry about, you know, in the world at the moment or the past six months or the next year. This is this weekend on the planet Earth. And that's that's what I find particularly Mm -hmm. uh, troubling since we are distracted and the United States in every single case that I just listed is making the situation worse, not better. That is exactly right. And we've become so used to the the United States being the manager of these crises. It it may be, and it often is, that the United States, you know, can't magically make these situations better. Or we go in with hopes of of transformational policies that can solve a crisis. And, And we often leave office chastened about those but we almost always have been able to prevent the situation from getting worse. You have to say this administration is a break with all of that, in part because they don't care, in part because some of them see chaos as in their benefit. But I would say in large part because of simple incompetence, not staffing the administration with people like Armitage that you mentioned, who was able to go into Kashmir and and help with the situation. Why? Because he has six or seven years of experience managing this, because he had a a, a teams with experience, because he had a State Department fully uh, staffed, ready to deal with these crises. And here we have people who are who are uh, neglecting them either willfully or sort of structurally, organizationally. And we're finally getting to the point where this stuff is starting to burn. You know, if we are the frog in the pot that for the last, since the Trump administration began, has been slowly getting hotter, well, we're starting to notice that the bubbles are coming, that we're we're really forming. And when you say something like Greenland, you know, I was at, I was in Greenland uh, two years ago in March. It was freezing in Greenland. I mean, like, can't take your gloves off, cold, freezing. And to see those pictures now of, of torrents of water pouring off the island into the ocean, you know, you know, millions of tons of water every hour pouring into the ocean. It is horrifying. We, you feel, you feel that we are at a tipping point, on on multiple tipping points on multiple crises. Can it get worse? Yes, but boy, it is pretty bad right now. Yeah, definitely. I don't think anyone can top that. (laughs) Well, oh, go on, try. You know, I I would say, you know, well, goes back to Rose's point. You know, it's hard to top that, but on the other hand, uh, it's possible to imagine cir- circumstances in which it was topped. And, you know, one of them is, you know, you take just the climate issue. Um, I saw a little exchange on social media, you know, this morning even, uh, in which somebody said, you know, July was the hottest issue, ho- hottest month in the history of the world. And th- the response of some Trump skeptic was, well, where? It's not that hot here. And, and I was like, 
oh my god you know this is you know we're, we're dealing with you know planetary existential crisis and we're able to rationalize it uh minimize it uh and find a way to push it out of our brain but you can take you can take the stories you know evelyn how, how do you feel about what happened you know let's just pick pick up on the nuclear issue what happened with the inf or, or what happened with zarif in iran well yeah i mean it's horrendously disappointing because again all what the administration has been good at is ratcheting up pressure but then sometimes they release it and get nothing so for example north korea because i mean they haven't fully released of course there's still sanctions on north korea but they've allowed they've allowed a lot of cheating and certainly diplomatically president trump is acting right now as if north korea is not a nuclear a problem, a nuclear threat, or even a conventional threat, for that matter, to South Korea and to U.S. troops on the peninsula and to U.S. interests. Um, in the case of Iran, of course, he's ratcheting. Are the administration's ratcheting up pressure? They say they are open to negotiations, but if you listen to what the conditions for those negotiations are, it's basically, you know, we'll negotiate with a government that has a completely different foreign policy, which is completely unrealistic. So they're just trying to put the Iranians to the wall. It seems to me that there are a lot of folks, whoever it is that wants regime change, and we can name names, but um, in, the, in the Trump administration is willing to take on increasing risk to, you know, shipping, to U.S. shipping, to U.S. personnel, U.S. military and civilian personnel in the Gulf, to our allies, uh, at, you know, with every day that passes when we don't have an, an agreement when we don't have an ongoing negotiation with the Iranians. They are going to push, just as the North Koreans will push, until we're ready to negotiate. And we should be ready to negotiate. We're not going to negotiate. We, we can negotiate from a position of strength. We're not going to negotiate things away. But that's important. It's important to you know, take the leverage we have and at the right moment convert it to negotiation so that we lessen the risk to the international community. On the issue of Russia, again, here's a case where the Trump administration has been unable to come up with a diplomatic uh, approach. I, I, their, their approach when it comes to how they responded to the Russian cheating and basically their development of this missile and the fielding of it and all of that, I, I personally don't have a, a beef necessarily with the, with the U.S. decision, but I have a huge beef with how they've done it, again, starting with a presidential tweet uh, not working closely with our allies, not putting any new negotiations, as far as I can tell, or at least serious ones, because they have had some talks um, in place to try to address now what's what's fueling a new new unnecessary arms race in in potentially in Europe and certainly in Asia. So now I know the Asia thing is is a lot harder, but I'll leave it at that. I think I've painted enough of a picture for you. Oh, it's not enough, but I, that, that's why Rosa's here, uh, and because because you know, we, you know, we could be sitting here, and we do sometimes, and we can you know put on our kind of wonk hats, and we can say, well, here are all the problems we can think of, and they're sort of D level problems, and C level problems, and B level problems, and A level problems, but really, what I'm talking about here are the kind of double A red flashing light problems that in any other time 
would dominate the headlines, dominate the conversation for weeks and for weeks because they have the potential for changing the balance of power in the world, leading to catastrophe or being a catastrophe. And, you know, Rosa, just just take the, you know, just a couple of the ones that we've talked about here. Um, uh, you know, in honor of Joe, we'll just take it in a kind of his main line of work here. Um, uh, India and, and Pakistan are one of the most dangerous nuclear situations in the world. It's just gotten more dangerous. Iran had a nuclear program. We had it under control. Removing the JCPOA has made it more dangerous. Uh, North Korea has had a nuclear program. We entered into talks with them. During the time that we've been in the talks with them, they've built more nuclear warheads. They've tested more missiles. North Korea is materially more dangerous today than it was at the beginning of these talks, even if the talks themselves were a good idea. Russia has more nuclear warheads than anybody, and we are taking apart our nuclear treaties with Russia. So one could argue that this is as dangerous a moment as has existed on the nuclear front in in many, many years. And and that's just, you know, one slice of this. We've talked about others, but but perhaps you want to address that one, Rosen. Well, I've got good news and bad news, David. Um, so I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm in Wyoming. I'm, I'm actually sitting here as I speak to you all on the, the back deck of my, my little cabin. And I'm looking out at the, the Bighorn Mountains. And I wasn't completely joking when I said I'd try to bring you all back a couple of T-Rex bones because this is, this is one of the regions uh, of the earth in which the largest number of dinosaur fossils have been found for all kinds of reasons. And, and when you sit here and you look out at these mountains that are filled with the, the, the remains of now extinct species and everywhere you go around here, you pick up fossils of extinct species, extinct little oysters, extinct little squids, you name it. I haven't found a T-Rex, but I'm, I'm working on it. You know, one of the, one of the things that comes to mind is, boy, the earth has been around for a really long time. And, and, and here's the good news. I said, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is this, the planet earth is still here. Um, it's doing okay. It's doing fine. The bad news is that the dinosaurs are all dead and the dinosaurs <laughs> are all extinct. And you know, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, the good news is that the Earth will probably still be here a million years from now, no matter how much we fuck things up with North Korea or Iran or the Indians and the Pakistanis uh, uh, are at odds with each other, no matter how much we ignore climate change until it's too late. The bad news is there's no particular guarantee that we humans will be here. And, and maybe someday I'm, I'm sort of contemplating the, the thought that some, you know, alien civilization will come here and they'll find a bunch of little human fossils as they stroll around the Bighorn Basin in Wyoming, and they'll say, "Oh, did you know that millions of years ago these creatures called humans lived here?" You know, so there. That that's that's really all I have to say about that. <laughs> the good news is, you know, viewed from the perspective of geological time, that's, I feel just so calm down. Yeah, relax. The Earth will but, be okay. But, you, but <laughs> I feel so much better. Rosa, you know what they do have in in Wyoming? What's that, David? <laughs> and, and these and they're now tourist attractions, just like the dinosaurs. Abandoned Wait, nuclear. I, I completely missed abandoned, that. Abandoned nuclear oh, missile silos. Right, they they do. You they know, do. I thought that's yeah. where she was going. Yeah, you have yeah. more. No, no, no. More in Air Force Base silos. You have uh, silos in the north Very of true. Wyoming. You could visit them. You could move into them. You could locate your cabin in them. 
I, no, you, know, just, you just have to, you, you know, you just have to accept that, that, uh, in the fullness of time, all will be revealed. Um, oh, yes, of why you're in Wyoming and spending so much time <laughs> there, you know, and we all get to go to a housewarming party at Rosa's side. No, I, I mean, but, but, but the, the serious side of that, needless to say, right. I, I mean, we've all seen these little cartoons where the dinosaurs are, you know, far side type cartoons where the dinosaurs are strolling around saying things to each other. Oh, you know this ice age, it's nothing, you know, don't be silly, it'll self-correct. And, and we are, you know, we are very much in the same position that, uh, it, it's every, everything you said is right, David. I mean, the, the, the fact that we can have all these ongoing crises and yet, of course, we can still go to the supermarket and we can still go to soccer games and we can still all do the normal things does not somehow mean that everything is normal and everything is going to be fine. Uh, you know, we may be like the dinosaurs enjoying our last our last few balmy evenings. Wow. Um, our love. Well, that got dark so quickly, Joe. Uh, well, that's my know, job. That's my yeah, job. No, 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 it, it really, it, it really <laughs> At least is. The you know, one was the... balmy and not like fiery or something. Yeah, well, she was spelling balmy maybe differently. But, but I, I, you know, Joe, one of the reasons I enjoy talking to you about this stuff is that you're an expert. But another one that reason <laughs> I enjoy talking about this is you tend to be kind of optimistic. You yes. are not a Trump Republican. When Trump sits down with Kim Jong-un, you look for the good in it. You look for what might positively happen out of it. But even at your most optimistic about the fact that talks are continuing or something possibly might come out of it, when you look at a litany and you say, well, gee, North Korea has more nuclear warheads and it's got no more missiles. Um, uh, uh, the JCPOA is dead and we are getting more towards confrontation with them. Uh, Russia's in a tough situation uh, and we are dismantling our nuclear treaties with them. India and Pakistan you know, grow closer to conflict potentially in Kashmir, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to admit, for a guy in your line of work, the red lights ought to be flashing, right? There are a lot of red lights flashing right now. You're absolutely right, uh, David. And and it's, you know, you, sometimes you feel like you're playing nuclear whack-a-mole. You're trying to tamp down one crisis, respond to one, the, the other, and they just keep popping up. Uh, there is a little bit of optimism. I, I, I got to say, this is uh, this uh, podcast will probably air uh, uh, on or about the anniversary of uh, the Hiroshima bombing, August 6th, uh, 1945, 74 years ago, uh, followed shortly by the Nagasaki bombing, August 9th. But there hasn't been a bombing since then. So 74 years. Many of many experts over that time have thought that uh, we were going to more or less rapidly uh, destroy, well, as, as Rosa points out, we're not going to destroy the planet. The planet will be fine, but we will destroy human life on the on this planet. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened because people, well, like us, like people on this podcast, people listening to this podcast have cared, have have pushed forward policies, have brought us back from the brink when we've got to it. it and we've been able to preserve the species to prevent nuclear war. We are at a dangerous, dangerous point. There's an article coming out in Foreign Affairs, I think, in the next couple of days by Ernie Moniz and Sam Nunn, arguing 
that we are that the nuclear crises, the threat of nuclear use is is worse now than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, the point you were making. And our hope is got to be that those cooler heads can once again prevail. We do not have those cool heads in this administration. So we have to work as hard as we can to restrain this administration, I would argue, then replace this administration. And that's where you have to get the the hope. That's where you where you have to get the feeling that we can't. We, there are policies that can make a, di- a difference. This isn't the, the you know in a human nature that we're going to blow ourselves up. It's not inevitable that these things c- can lead to a crisis. There are good policies that can, it, it, but if implemented by good people, can have good result. B- before I end. I just got to say this INF withdrawal, this killing of the INF treaty, you know, Donald Trump has just killed Ronald Reagan's treaty and in so doing, given Putin a gift. This doesn't punish Russia. This allows Russia to do whatever they want. He removed the limits. Now, Putin can deploy as many missiles as he wants. And you saw the real reason for this uh, in, in Mark Esper the new Secretary of Defense, his comments that he wants to deploy new intermediate range missiles in Asia. And he makes those remarks in Australia. And to show you the incompetence of this administration, every single Australian security official immediately denounces those remarks. The defense minister, the foreign minister, the prime minister says, we're not going to be deploying these missiles in Australia. We're not going to be putting missiles in Australia that can hit China. We want no part of this. And you realize these guys have no plan. They want to build these missiles. They want to deploy them. But there's not a single country that's indicated or is likely to indicate that they want to deploy them. These are land-based missiles, and the U.S. doesn't have any land to put them on. Another example of the incoherence and incompetence of this administration. Yeah, and just to return to your favorite country, Evelyn, or one of your favorite countries. Uh, Again, over the past few days, fighting has intensified in Syria. The Russians have re-engaged with militants. They have done so in some cases uh, with the aid of the Syrian government and the Iranians. Uh, Things are heating up there. Uh, Not too far from there, of course, the Russians are selling missile systems to the Turks, our NATO ally, and we're in the midst of a standoff with the Turks. Um, over whether to provide them with uh, F-35 fighters uh, because they're um, taking these Russian missile systems uh, uh, and thus being drawn sort of more into the Soviet arms or the Russian arms orbit. Um, <laughs> th- 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 sorry, you know, age speaks there, I guess. But, <laughs> it's but, okay, but, it's okay. Um, but, but, you know, th- th- here is a situation that's supposed to be done, but even in the last three days, um, uh, 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 Jim Jeffries, uh, the U.S. Yeah. envoy in this area, who I suspect all of us, you know, think pretty highly of, respect respectable guy, one of the more um, um, serious people that the Trump administration has appointed to a senior post, has said, uh, "Oh no, ISIS is there. They're coming back," and 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 you know, just zero news, right? No, nobody's paying attention to it because yeah. of everything else. No, I mean, well, ISIS, first of all, hasn't left. And um, the Kurds actually, I mean, it's really horrible what's happening right now. And nobody's paying attention to what's happening in Syria. Because basically, the last holdout um, of the opposition, if you will, to, you know, effective opposition to um, Assad is in northwest Syria. And that's where the U.S. and the Turks 
are the bigger powers, and the U.S. is allied very closely with the Kurds. And our fight there has been against ISIS. And yes, we have done very well, and so they're on their back feet, but they're not completely destroyed, contrary to what the president declared, I don't know, a month or two ago. They're not 100 or 110 percent decimated. Um, they're still alive. And in fact, they're about, I don't remember the number, but there are hundreds, if not thousands of them being held in prisons in that Kurd, con Kurdish-controlled territory. Now, these are Syrian Kurds who would like more autonomy within Syria. The Turks are super paranoid because they have their own Kurds in Turkey, and they have some autonomy, but the, but the Turks are very suspicious of their of their Kurds. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to go into too much depth. But, the, but we are allied with the Kurds in Syria, and the Turks want to basically destroy the Kurds in Syria, or at least eliminate them from that area near the border. So we, we asked the Turks, you know, let's make a deal, let's, let's create a, a zone, like a, uh, I don't know, a no, not a no-fly, but, but, a, but a neutral zone, if you will, that the U.S. and Turkey will patrol, will control. And the Turks aren't going for it. They want to continue pushing forward. So you have bombs being dropped by Assad and the Russians on the civilians who are holed up with the opposition fighters. Uh, I'm sure not every man there is a fighter, but nevertheless... There are many opposition fighters there in Idlib and around there. You've heard of Idlib maybe from the news. And so there's still, I don't know, about 2 million or so civilians in that, in that city, in that area. And they're being bombed without any discretion, you know, whether they're bombing civilian quarters or not. Uh, that is the Russians and the, and the Syrians. And meanwhile, we are now having a struggle with Turkey and the Kurds about what to do. So there's potential refugee crisis coming. And I think this is a bigger issue in, in the near term, although, of course, the question of whether Turkey can, can remain a NATO ally while it's hedging with its armaments <laughs> um, uh, you know, purchases is a big open question looming right after the immediate one, which is what happens, to, what happens in Syria. So we, we only have five or ten minutes left, and I want to get to a couple of other things in that in that period of time. Rosa, you know, the big enchilada in international relationships is the United States and China. The U.S.-China relationship is in a terrible place. Um, I watch what's happening in Hong Kong, which has now had protests for nine weeks, and see that heading to a very difficult place. And then you see these pictures of Shenzhen and troops massing, and you think you've got another potentially Tiananmen Square kind of situation around the corner. And the president of the United States has said essentially not, they better be careful, they better respect human rights, they better respect international law. But he's essentially said, I trust the Chinese to take care of this. The United States has essentially given the green light to the Chinese government to do what they need to do in whatever way that they want to do it. At the same time, the U.S. actually has, one might argue, less leverage in this entire thing because the trade situation has deteriorated. The president is attacking the Chinese for their currency policy. He also happens to be attacking the Fed for our currency policy simultaneously. Um, the risk of escalating trade tensions with China is what is beating up on the market. Um, and so, you, you, you know, this situation, which was another one that was being handled by the great relationship Trump had with a leader and his great negotiations, is also a friggin' mess. 
and yes. yeah. yeah, sorry <laughs> uh sorry i didn't realize that that was the that was the question yeah um yeah. No, well, let, me, let me rephrase the question this situation is also a friggin mess <laughs> uh-huh. i i think you're right david it, it is a friggin mess um um yeah, I, I, I mean, so nothing new here that Trump's instincts are to side with the forces of repression. Uh, it's clear to me that it wouldn't bother Donald Trump at all were there to be a military crackdown on the Hong Kong protests. Um, he doesn't care. Um, I think as usual, you know, as I, as I said about uh, India and, and, and Pakistan and, and Kashmir, you know, as usual, probably the best anybody can hope for um, is that Trump will, in fact, stay out of it and, and doesn't really have any ability to influence it. That's probably just as well. I, I you know, I, I, my guess is that the Chinese government recognizes fully what a catastrophic decision it would be to have an sort of overt military intervention in Hong Kong uh, and is trying to find some face-saving way out of that. Um, it would be catastrophic catastrophic. It, it would be it would lead it would lead to global condemnation. It would probably be very bad for the Chinese economy. Uh, not that Chinese economies uh, isn't already struggling. Uh, in the context of the trade war with the U.S. and and, and other internal issues, um, so my 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 hope on this one is that somehow or other, and I, I don't I don't know what the solution would be, but that somehow or other that the 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 logic here points towards the Chinese find just seeking some way to defuse the crisis peacefully. Um, but as we know, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't think we're in the same place as as Tiananmen Square. You know, I think I think that the degree of sensitivity, the Chinese government's degree of sensitivity to external criticism is much greater now than it was then. Uh, partly, you know, partly because the the dream of Bill Clinton to some extent succeeded. Right. That as China became more enmeshed in the global economy, China did become more attuned to the importance of global norms and so on. It was imperfect. It didn't happen nearly to the degree that the sort of free trade boosters uh, uh, of the 1990s imagined or hoped that it would. But to some extent, I think it. I, I think I think there is certainly a greater degree of anxiety on the part of Chinese leaders now about about world opinion than there was then. Um, so I'm, I, you know, I, I don't know what to say about it beyond that, and that, you know, I'm crossing my fingers. It's, it's, it, it's still a very scary situation. I, I'm still inclined to think that there will be some kind of non-solution that does not involve a military crackdown, but, but I, I could very well be wrong. By the way, so can I, I put I, myself in the? Well, I'm I'm going to take part of her comment personally as one of those free trade boosters of the 1990s. (laughs) Sorry, David. (laughs) Uh, No, no. I, I, you know, we thought it was going to have more of an effect than it was going to. Uh, But I also want to point out that Bill Clinton's vision of drawing China in—that's a kind of a mis uh, misinterpretation of fact. I recall specifically a moment where some of those free trade boosters were in the Oval Office talking to the President of the United States about opening up and developing better trade ties with China. 
and Bill Clinton, um, still off of his 92 campaign where he was running against talk closer ties with China, said, I wish I were running against our China policy now. And he had to be sort of dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> well, that's uh, great. Yeah. into that. So, so, so you the know, Clinton it, policy, which we will not attribute to Clinton. Yeah, well, the policy of whatever was at that period. We've got about five minutes to go. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to just sort of go around to everybody. We can go to you first, Evelyn. Um, uh, but I, just to sort of pick pick up on this, this seems to me one of the things that I, you know, I'm not saying this is Tiananmen right now. I'm saying it has the potential to become that. And that this is because of Trump to a country like China, a country like Saudi Arabia, a country like Russia, a country like Israel, the best moment to be your worst self. Because, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. No, no, sorry. Yeah, because, I mean, I think I'm actually really worried. So unlike Rosa, I'm really worried. And I, I worry not just because, of course, I'm rooting for these poor citizens of Hong Kong, and I was just there, you know, spending some time with some of them. Um, and so... Uh, like about a month ago, remember we did a podcast after I came back. No, no, and, you went to Hong and Kong, I was and in the Taiwan. Whole place went to hell immediately after yeah. you left. <laughs> yeah, and I was in <laughs> Taiwan even more recently. Um, and and when I was in Taiwan, the demonstrations were occurring. So I will I will make it clear that while I was there, there were no demonstrations occurring in Hong Kong. But later, like about a month later, when I was in Taiwan, they 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 were already underway. And what I'm worried about is you have. The intersection between this president, which you guys already discussed, somebody who is unwilling to step in and be a moderating influence, and you have President Xi, who happens to be, this is, I think, a coincidence, He's, he doesn't exist because of Trump, you know, um, but he is a, a man fully capable of, of taking advantage in the worst way possible. And so I am worried because some of the military leaders have been saying really belligerent things. President Xi himself, as I noted on an earlier podcast, has said some belligerent things relative to Taiwan. Um, so I, I worry very much about whether they, the Chinese government will uh, you know, refuse to use force and, and whether they will be somehow um, affected by international opinion, especially in light of the trade war. But I'll leave it at that. Okay, very quickly, but we'll go once to Joe and then once to, to, to Rosa here at the end. You know, Joe, one of the things that I enjoy about you is, you know, sort of following you in social media. And typically, if you're not at a nuclear, you know, conference talking about catastrophe, mm -hmm. there's a picture of you in your spandex next to your bike, you know, on some island beside <laughs> the ocean. Uh, and it's, don't get me wrong, I'm not, it's not Joe in spandex that really gets me to go to these pictures. Um, but but you, you are sort of connected to the planet. And, you know, one of the things, it, it, you know, you do spend a lot of time in nature. You do care about these, these issues. Yeah, well, you can just go to Instagram or whatever. There's a lot of jokes. But, but, but um, the, 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 you know, we, we're, we're talking about all this. Meanwhile, as we said, planet's the hottest it's ever been. Greenland is torrents of water. Um, and, and in The Economist right now, there's a story about the speed with which Jair Bolsonaro, a man who Trump likes, a man who sort of frames himself as the Trump of Latin America, is destroying the Amazon yeah. rainforest, destroying what's called the lungs of the world. And if they go away, they are not coming back. 
And, you know, there are people and, you know, great people, you know, Greta Thunberg, the 16 year old who speaks truth to power and more wisdom than any leader in the world right now, who are noting this is the worst thing happening on the planet right now. All these other things are terrible, but this is the worst. You know, I noticed that The Guardian has uh, recently implemented some vocabulary changes, and one of them is that they no longer refer to climate change. They refer to the climate crisis. And that the, the, and, and I, I think they're on to something. And in some ways, we should be talking about the, the nuclear crisis, the democracy crises. We have all these multiple crises happening at the same time. And what's happening in Brazil is is unbelievable, unbelievably tragic for exactly what you say. When, for, when other foreign leaders or for, for reporters try to talk to the leader of Brazil about this strategy, he says, it's none of your business. This is our forest. And what he's done is let the drillers and and the miners um, back into the Amazon and in particularly vicious ways so that they're not even taking time with with normal saws and normal cutting of trees. They hook up chains between bulldozers and they and they drag them across the forest to be able to clear cut hundreds, a hundred yard swaths of the of the Amazon forest. And you're right. These things are not going to be able to come back, at least in any reasonable uh, amount of time. And our administration just looks the other way, doesn't care, has nothing to say about this, just has it has nothing to say about gun violence, about um, the, the autocratic government in India reasserting its control over a previously autonomous region of, of Kashmir, over the autocratic government of China reasserting potentially its control over a previously auto relatively autonomous region of, of Hong Kong. Our administration is, it's not asleep at the switch, it is actively disengaged, actively looking at the other way. It is one of the, the great tragedies in American and as it turns out, global history. Yeah, and, and of course we don't know where, where it is all going. So I, I, I've carefully avoided getting too caught up in the world headlines all the way through this, but I, I, I don't want to avoid it altogether because of all the crises that we've talked about and all the potential for wars and conflicts and disasters, over the course of the next year and likely over the course of the next several years, the only thing that's likely to kill tens of thousands of Americans are American guns in the hands of American mass shooters. The, 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 the reality is that um, 39,000 people died last year as a result of gun violence, uh, that that we, we passed 250, we're now at 251 or 252. Mass shootings were about to equal last year's number of mass shootings. We have more than one mass shooting a day. Most countries have zero mass shootings. Uh, the, 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 the country that's next to us in this list, I think, had three last year. Um, so we're, we're, we're killing ourselves, Rosa. Uh, and, and I don't think, you know, I mean, Trump's message to the world is, uh, this is the best moment to be our, our worst selves. Uh, but but hmm. that's his message to America, too, is it not? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously he came out with a very belated, oh, right, let's condemn white nationalism, clearly under immense pressure from his own party um, after the, the most recent spate of mass shootings, including the one in El Paso, which involved a a gunman who who posted an elaborate manifesto uh, condemning immigrate immigrants and immigration in, in terms very similar to those used by the president of the United States. Um, so I, I think I think 
finally, even for the Republicans and for Trump, the the shame of uh, creating an environment which was, you know, you know there, I, I, it's very hard to see it other than as encouraging this kind of violence um, uh, finally overcame them. Will that lead to any meaningful change? I don't know. I'm in, inclined to doubt it. But, but I think right now we have this sort of toxic stew of two really bad trends, you know, coming together, one being the prevalence of firearms in the United States, um, uh, and in particular, not just any old firearms, you know, not just a, you know, a shotgun for going skeet shooting or uh, the type of rifle you use if you're a serious deer hunter uh, with some faint sporting instincts, um, but the, the, the prevalence of the types of heavy weaponry uh, that can kill multiple people in 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 seconds, you know, um, in the United States, that's one trend. And and we have, you know, there are more guns sloshing around in the United States uh, than anywhere else on Earth. The sort of perk, you know, people. I don't have the the statistics at my fingertips at the moment, but they're pretty horrific. I mean, the the ratio of people to weapons in this country greatly exceeds that of virtually any other place, including war zones, um, where you might think there would be more guns per person. Um, so we've got that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we, we have uh, Donald Trump's administration, which rather than um, you know trying to put out fires and encourage tolerance and encourage people to get along and respect each other, has been doing the exact opposite. I mean, the, the Trump back in May uh, you know, made some comment at a rally like, you know, what are we going to do about all these immigrants pouring over the borders? And somebody in the audience shouted, shoot them. And Trump smiled and made a joke about it and said, oh, only in the panhandle could you get away with saying that and then just went right on. And obviously, you know, sooner or later, you keep making jokes like that. Uh, sooner or later, you do start having people who say, yeah, if you shoot them, that's what you do. You know, so, so, so at a moment when the, the sort of you know, the, the NRA is right only insofar as, you know, they say, oh, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Um, you know, that there's there's a kernel of truth in that. But when you have all these guns around and then you also add to that, led by the president of the United States, a, a discourse that says uh, our enemies are inside. Uh, we can't tolerate this. We have to get rid of them. They're like vermin. Um, well, that's that toxic stew leads to more and more mass shootings. It's uh, it's a rough time, a rough time in the United States, a rough time in the world. Uh, I hope that those of you who are weekly listening to Deep State Radio uh, find that conversations like this among engaged experts are encouraging, uh, as was mentioned early in the ex- episode. Uh, it takes large groups of people who study and immerse themselves in issues like this to solve these problems. With some luck, we are a year and a half away from having groups like that re-empowered in the United States. I hope to God we are. Uh, because when you look at issues like this getting worse as they have been throughout the Trump tenure, we probably cannot afford as a country or as a planet to go much longer with evil and stupidity and ignorance and incompetence playing the role that they currently play in our uh, foreign and domestic policy. Uh, That said, 
uh, and for that reason, I'm extremely glad that Joe, um, who, by the way, has joined us via video and is not wearing spandex at the moment, <laughs> um, uh, and um, Evelyn and Rosa out there among the silos and the dinosaur bones uh, have joined us, and we hope that you will join us again uh, later this week for the next episode of Deep State Radio and each and every week. And if you want more Deep State Radio, if you want more uh, of our other podcasts and other things that we've written, go to the DSRnetwork.com, uh, sign up, uh, become a member. We have done a membership survey, which I promised I'd talk about and I will in the next episode. Uh, but uh, one of the things that it says is that our members are incredibly loyal, that they spend on average two and a half hours each week listening to our podcasts, uh, that uh, they, uh, and by they, I mean you, um, uh, end up supporting us and becoming members primarily to support the kind of conversations we're having, uh, to uh, support us in our ability to have more and more of these podcasts. We hope you'll do that. We hope you'll, you'll, you'll join them. Uh, there's certainly going to be a need for more conversations like this in the future. So again, thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Evelyn. Thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.